No one filmmaker captures a sense of magic and wonder quite like Steven Spielberg. And he once again proves this to be true with the release of the bombastically nostalgic rump that is Ready Player One. That's my topic on Film Bits number 18. Hello friends, hello internet, welcome once again to the Film Bits Podcast, episode number 18. As usual, I'm your host, Matt, and today we're going to talk about a Steven Spielberg movie, which is never a bad thing. Yes, Ready Player One just hit movie theaters, and let me tell you, it was a lot of fun. Let's take a look at the IMDb rundown for this movie. The synopsis is as stated... When the creator of a virtual reality world called The Oasis dies, he releases a video in which he challenges all Oasis users to find his Easter egg, which will give the finder his fortune. This movie was directed, of course, by the illustrious Steven Spielberg, who needs no introduction, and it was written by Zach Penn and Ernest Klein, who is incidentally the writer of the novel that this movie is based off of. And I have to admit, I have not read the book. I don't read that much these last few years. And even when I'm given the option to read a book and watch the movie, I would usually choose to watch the movie first. Because if you do it vice versa, you're usually always disappointed. So when listening to my review and my rundown of this movie, just keep in mind, I'm judging this as a movie. I'm not tying my judgment or my review of this movie to the book or the novel in any way, shape, or form. So let's get down to it and talk about this film, which, again, I have an absolutely positive response to. And, you know, for someone like me, it's kind of difficult to judge this film objectively because I am a child of the 1980s. I am a gamer. I play video games. It's one of my hobbies. And this film shamelessly taps into this demographic's fierce love of pop culture and gaming. However, even outside of that, even if I can step outside of that demographic, I still think this is a good movie. And you know, normally I'm a Nazi about vocal audiences in the cinema. Just ask my wife how anal I am about this. People really should just shut up and not talk or whisper or do anything during a movie in the theater. But when you're watching this movie, it's really hard not to gasp or blurt out references that flash across the screen. My entire audience was doing it, I was guilty of doing it, and really, I had no quarrel with it. Because this movie has a boatload of pop culture references So much so that it was kind of overwhelming. I feel like I only caught a fraction of these references and Easter eggs on the screen. There's so many fast-moving scenes and shots just stacked with recognizable avatars, and it moves so quickly that I could only pick out a few of them at a time. So I really feel like I need to see this movie ten more times at home, with my finger on the pause button, freeze-framing some of these shots so that I could pick out 
everything that Steven Spielberg put in there. And, you know, if that was all this film had to offer, it would almost still be good enough. But there are other strengths in this movie as well. Visually, this movie has a stunning spectrum of color. The Oasis really is eye candy on steroids. And this film does skirt a line between an animated and live action feature. The story moves very briskly. It's a well over two hour film, but it certainly doesn't feel like it. And as a Spielberg film, it is still missing a couple of things. The characters and story, while certainly fun and engaging, lack a depth and narrative punch that we normally find in Spielberg movies. John Williams' absence is felt as well, but Alan Silvestri steps in and still manages to deliver a timely score that is of high quality and certainly very appropriate for the film. So hopefully you've all armed yourselves with a movie pass, because this is one of the many films this summer that you probably need to see on the big screen. It's visually immersive. I may even go back and see it in 3D, even though I don't normally care for that format. It's such a visually fun movie to watch, and I certainly recommend catching it on the big screen. So at this point, I'm going to move into my deep dive. If you want to avoid any spoilers, this is your chance to tune out. And now I want to talk about some of the more specific components of this movie that make it so fun and engaging. Now, the opening of this film paints a very bleak picture of the future, the year 2045 to be more specific. And one of the first things we see is a rundown, endless stack of mobile homes somewhere outside of Columbus, Ohio, adding to the bleakness of this reality we're being presented with. Spielberg used a lot of dull, washed-out tones for these shots, as well as any other real-world moments that we experience throughout the movie. And to further portray the hopelessness of this reality, nearly everyone seen in the background of every shot is sporting VR goggles. They're seemingly buried in the Oasis, which incidentally stands for Ontologically Anthropocentric Sensory Immersive Simulation. Wow, that's a mouthful. But like an actual oasis in the desert, it is a place for people to escape from reality. And it's honestly one of the film's more intelligent commentaries, because people today are similarly finding escape in the form of gaming and audiovisual entertainment. So when we finally enter the oasis as an audience, we are blasted with an explosive array of vibrant color. And it's Spielberg's clever way of contrasting the two worlds. So when we reach the Oasis, that's a good way to be presented with our characters, our main players in the movie. The star of the show is Wade Watts, or Parzival, as his avatar is known. Played by Ty Sheridan. And the last time we saw him, he was young Scott Summers slash Cyclops in X-Men Apocalypse. And he'll be reprising that role in X-Men Dark Phoenix, which we just learned was delayed until early 2019. And Ty Sheridan does an adequate job with this role. He doesn't fail as an actor, but he also doesn't blow us away. The next character I want to talk about is Helen, also known as H in the Oasis, played by Lena Waithe. And her character is mostly in male avatar form throughout the film. 
And this character speaks to the truth in the video gaming world that nothing is as it seems, and her character even plays on that concept throughout the film. It is a very fun character, especially during a noteworthy sequence in the middle of the movie where she is trying to escape from a simulation of the film The Shining, which is very funny and entertaining. The next character is Samantha, also known as Artemis on the Oasis, played by the young and beautiful Olivia Cook, who seems to be a blossoming talent. She's been in some B-list films and done some noteworthy television work, um, but also a talented young actress who, again, has a serviceable role in the movie, but doesn't necessarily blow the doors off with her acting ability. Then we have the prime antagonist, the character Nolan Sorrento, played by Ben Mendelsohn. And he was relatively unknown to me until a few years ago in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. And obviously he had the role of director Krennic in Rogue One, also a nice part playing King George in The Darkest Hour. Ben Mendelsohn seems to be typecasted as a treacherous, weaselly character in most of the movies he's in. I think he's even playing the Sheriff of Nottingham in an upcoming Robin Hood adaptation, which will seemingly be perfect for him. But in this movie, he is one of my favorite characters. In this film, he plays kind of a sleazy corporate type, using his financial power and resources to try and seize control of Halliday's empire, which is up for grabs in the Oasis. And his avatar looked to me like Bizarro, of Superman fame, which I don't know if that's what they were going for specifically, but if they were, it would be quite fitting since he's a very powerful character, yet backwards and twisted. Another notable mention is the character Irock, who is only seen in Avatar form in the movie, voiced by T.J. Miller. And with T.J. Miller, it's pretty much a WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. He always plays a goofball spouting silly one-liners in pretty much every role he's ever had, and he certainly does that again in Ready Player One, although this time he's in more of a villainous format. But he's pretty fun every time he's on screen. The central character, Halliday, is played by Mark Rylance, and much like Ben Mendelsohn, he's been around for a while, but only recently as a big-time actor. He did fantastic work a few short years ago with Steven Spielberg on Bridge of Spies, which I believe he was nominated for an Academy Award for that role, and he also had a noteworthy role in Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk last year. I loved his role in this movie. He showed great range as an actor. He played a very socially awkward, pop culture slash gaming obsessed, overgrown man-child in control of this massive company. Much in the same vein as like a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates. His performance was very heartfelt and convincing, especially in the closing moments of the film. There's a great scene that I love towards the end where you see him digging around a messy, unkempt room fresh out of the 1980s with a young version of himself glued to an Atari 2600 in the corner of the room there are VHS tapes and movie memorabilia and toys strewn about everywhere. It's probably one of my favorite moments from the film, and he's probably my favorite character in the movie, and definitely a highlight of the movie. So Spielberg does indeed deliver 
a strong story with strong characters, albeit derived from a novel, which again, I have not read. It features a squeaky clean plot revolving around unlocking secret challenges and obtaining keys to claim the ultimate prize vis-a-vis -vis Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And outside of some timely social commentary and Sheridan and Rylance's characters, there's really not a whole lot of depth or character development here, at least not like we're used to seeing in Spielberg films. Now, certainly this doesn't detract from the quality of the film, especially considering how visually enthralling it actually is and just how fun it is. And most of the fun, again, comes from the endless supply of references and Easter eggs throughout this movie. One of the in-game challenges towards the beginning of the film is an impossible race, in which we see Parzival driving the DeLorean, which looks and sounds amazing. H drives Bigfoot in this race, and they have to navigate through a slew of obstacles, including the T-Rex from Jurassic Park with that classic roar, and even King Kong himself. I also briefly mentioned a whole sequence of this movie revolving around Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick's film The Shining, which was a lot of fun, and the final battle sequence was absolutely loaded with references. Here's some of the ones that I caught a glimpse of. I saw Battletoads and the Ninja Turtles on this battlefield. There were multiple moments where Master Chief and an army of Spartans from Halo came onto the screen. Even Chucky was unleashed on the battlefield, and it's at this point in the movie that H is piloting the Iron Giant, and at one point even wields the glaive from the movie Krull, and Sorrento summons Mechagodzilla, which is eventually stopped by a massive Gundam robot. So again, this, this is only what I can remember after one viewing. This exhausting amount of references is part of what makes this movie so dang fun. And the score. The score of this film is something worth talking about because it's one of the few movies crafted by Spielberg without John Williams scoring the film. Yes, I understand John Williams is getting older and he is winding down his career, but Steven Spielberg and John Williams' Hollywood marriage is a huge part of their respective successes. And you can really feel the absence of John Williams in this movie. It's just, it's a very slight underlying void throughout the film. But again, it doesn't detract from the quality of the movie. In fact, Alan Silvestri, who's also a, a very successful film score composer, stepped in and did a fabulous job. Now, if you don't know anything about Alan Silvestri, one of his most famous works is the score to the Back to the Future movies. And he very cleverly molded much of this score after the Back to the Future soundtrack. You can hear it. Even if you don't know anything about this kind of music, you can hear the similarities between this movie score and the Back to the Future scores. So that's very, very clever and appropriate. And there are even moments in this film where he emulated Williams' style. And one of the really cool things he did was during that race that I mentioned where King Kong appears, he even infused an excerpt of the 1933 King Kong musical theme into the score. I eat up creative moments like that in a film score, and I loved it. 
So all in all, Spielberg again hit one out of the park. This man is pretty much incapable of making a bad movie, even if this one falls somewhere in the middle of the ranks of his catalog. In fact, I believe right now the Rotten Tomatoes score for this movie is sitting around 79%, which is certified fresh, but is probably a really fair grade for this movie. It's a very solid movie, but not one of Spielberg's best, and certainly not a bad movie. So it will stand as a solid, fun, energetic popcorn movie for generations to come, regardless of the generation that it services. So again, go see this movie. It's absolutely worth the cost of admission or worth the price of the gasoline you'll spend driving to the movie theater if you're like me and wield a movie pass. Go see this movie. It's a lot of fun. It's mostly family-friendly. And it's probably going to go down as a classic, especially for a lot of the younger generation that are going to see this movie right now. So as always, I really appreciate everyone listening to the show and hearing my thoughts, my, my humble, uneducated opinions on this movie. And as usual, if you want to get in touch with me, reach out to me on the Film Bits podcast Facebook page. Shoot me an email. Visit the website. Um, let's find ways to participate and get you guys involved with the show, which I think is coming down the pipe. I really want to line up some semi-permanent guests for the show. If I can configure some, uh, remote hosting for the podcast. Uh, but again, as always, I really appreciate you guys listening and we'll have many more movies to talk about as summer movie season, um, reaches full swing. So you guys have a fantastic day and I will talk to you again later.